Welcome to the next edition of Business Law Focus. It's a pleasure to welcome Beverly Oosthuizen, who's a senior associate in the Dispute Resolution Department at ENS Africa, to the show today. And we want to talk about energy. And the goal of the energy sector, of course, is to move to 42% non-fossil fuel sources by 2030. We wanted to delve into the climate action intensifying and climate litigation rising in tandem with this and what this means and what's most likely. So, uh, Beverly, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be part of this conversation. Yeah, it's certainly all happening out there, especially in the international media where we're seeing this rising litigation. But until we get to some of these cases and we want to delve into that and, and certainly what it means for directors, I think, is a big area that we want to focus on there where a, a lot of things are starting to happen. Um, let's maybe just take one step back and look at an, uh, the current landscape of climate litigation. Uh, maybe give us a brief overview. I know the Paris Agreement is a big area there. And, and, and then we just wanted to delve down into how South African uh, legislation is keeping pace with that. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Yeah, so where we act now is we've all heard that, you know, this is the decade for the rise of climate litigation or green litigation, as yeah. it's called. Now, that certainly is the case. Now, climate litigation isn't an entirely unknown um, type of case in the world historically. If we look since 1986 to about 2014, there are a couple of dozen climate change cases, mm. but from those numbers, you can see it was a very, very small percentage of cases that dealt with climate change. Since 2015, however, we've had over one and a half thousand cases. So in 30 years prior to 2014, we had 20 odd cases. But in the last eight years, we've had over one and a half thousand. So you can see this is the rise of the climate um, litigation era. And you know, the, the line in the sand, I think the, the impetus for a lot of the, the, the legal challenges that we're seeing coming through the court at the moment was the Paris Agreement. Now, in December 2015, an extremely exciting milestone or mark for, for climate change was when the Paris Agreement was signed. There are 196 countries that have signed this agreement and the agreement is a legally binding document, which means those countries can be held to account in terms of that agreement. Now, what is this Paris Agreement and what are its goals? Now, the goal of the Paris Agreement is to hold the increase in the global average temperature to well below two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. That's the, the marker. And also to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius above those pre-industrial levels to avoid further climate change impacts. So this all sounds quite technical. So where are we now? We know that we don't want the temperature to increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius above in pre-industrial levels. Currently, we are sitting at 1.2 degrees Celsius sure. above those pre-industrial levels. So the effort of the Paris Agreement and all the signatories is to stop the increase in temperature by another 0.3 degrees Celsius. And why this is of particular importance for South Africa is that South Africa is, in, is one of the 15 highest producers of greenhouse gases or produ producers of carbon emissions. And carbon emissions is what contributes to global warming. 
And another reason why this is of importance to South Africa is that South Africa is heating up or warming up at twice the rate of the global average. It's getting hot in South Africa, and we are one of the, the in the top 15 highest producers of greenhouse gases, as I said, which means that we are going to attract a lot of attention globally as the globe strives toward achieving the, 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 the goals of the Paris Agreement. And as an indicator of this, um, South Africa has complied with all of its obligations under the Paris Agreement to date, which is absolutely exciting. It shows the commitment that we as a country have to achieving these goals. South Africa is required, as with all other signatory countries, to submit a nationally determined contribution document every five years, which tells the United Nations what our plans as a country are to reduce our emission footprint over the next five years. Now, in our last um, NDC, South Africa made excellent um, commitments. They indicated that 2020 would be the decade for focusing on its electricity sector, which you know is heavily reliant on fossil fuels. 2030 will be the decade to really dig deeper into transitioning the electricity sector away from greenhouse um, from from fossil fuels to a more environmentally sustainable model and it's going to start focusing on the transport sector and then 2040 being the last decade the rundown to the 2050 deadline by which countries have to be net zero or um uh, or neutral on emissions, that's the decade that South Africa will start focusing on the slightly harder to mitigate sectors. So, so that's the, the background from an international point of view where we are with the Paris Agreement. Now, taking a lead from that Paris Agreement, South Africa has domestically prepared or drafted a climate change bill which was presented or tabled for consideration in 2022. So it's a very new bill. It's in very early stages of consideration. This bill is aimed at enabling the development of an effective climate change response and a long-term just transition to a low carbon and climate resistant or resilient economy. Um, the bill has a few very interesting um, factors that need consideration and that will have an impact on our, our industry. Um, the, the, the bill indicates that governments will identify the role players within the economy or industry who are most susceptible to producing higher levels of carbon emissions through the operation of their business. And government will come alongside those particular parties and work together with them to achieve a reduced carbon footprint with the hope and the aim of being carbon neutral by 2050. And one of the methods that the government is proposing utilizing is to allocate a carbon budget to parties within the industry or companies. And that carbon budget would last for five years at a time. And at the end of your carbon budget, you would then be allocated a new carbon budget with the hope and the aim of reducing your budget at each renewal period 
that way encouraging compliance with the Paris Agreement by forcing companies and role players in industry to reduce their carbon footprints by giving them lower and lower carbon budgets that they can spend, for want of a better word, in the production of whatever their operations are. Um, in line with the Paris Agreement as well, and also as I mentioned, South Africa is an area or a country that will start attracting focus as time goes by, given the amount of emissions that we are producing. Um, and in line with the, the world's efforts to act together, a just energy transition partnership has been formed. In fact, it is the only partnership that has been formed under the Paris Agreement, which I think is really um, notable, um, South Africa's role that it is playing and the efforts and its commitment to trying to achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement. We have formed a partnership with France, Germany, UK, USA, and certain other EU states um, with those countries have committed to invest in South Africa and the investment should be aimed at supporting an accelerated decarbonisation of South Africa's energy sector, which means a move away from coal. And also, and this is the really important, is to provide support to the workers in the community who would be impacted by that transition. We have to recognise as centrally important the goal of um, emission reduction is for our country and in turn for, for, for the globe, we have to recognise that there are certain people, many people in our country and many communities who get their, their living and their source of income from that coal industry. Yeah. And the goal of this partnership is not only to assist South Africa in moving away from coal as a fuel for its energy sector, but also to set up resources and structures that would assist and enable the workers and participants in that industry transitioning to other forms of income generation. And I think that's really critical and I think it's really responsible. Now, in terms of this partnership, the goal that South Africa has agreed to as part of this partnership is to move our energy sector to a 42% non-fossil fuel source by 2030. So that means that within the next seven and a half years, we are aiming to be 42% non-fossil fuel generated energy and electricity sectors, which is, uh, it's uh, you know, it's... It, it's a, a big goal and it's going to take a lot of commitment, but I think we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, it certainly is ambitious and certainly a lot of it's hot potato at the moment as well in the media um, as to how we accelerate moves towards that while protecting um, the industry, of course. So uh, fabulous breakdown. Thanks very much. I mean, there's a lot more detail there. It seems to be fairly well structured. Um, and uh, the commitment um, is needed, of course, to make it happen in a fairly short period. So now if we can just move on, that backdrop is, is, is really important because there's a lot happening. People have to get with this program, have to start implementing certain things. But what we are seeing um, is a rise in litigation. And maybe if we can just break down this litigation, there's some areas that are not that likely, that are not um, happening as frequently Others slightly more likely, and there are other areas that are actually right, right in the glare of um, of the courts at the moment. Maybe just give us a bit of a breakdown as to the types of litigation out there, and then we can drill down to what we can expect in South Africa. 
Absolutely. So there are definitely different forms of litigation coming out. Um, climate change litigation does not simply arise out of a special body of law or a special mm. climate law environment. Climate change litigation can arise out of various bodies of law. So we are seeing climate litigation coming out of constitutional law, where citizens are pursuing claims against their governments or against public listed companies on the basis that those governments have not done enough to achieve a reduced uh, carbon emission footprint or not doing enough to protect the rights of those particular citizens. Um, for instance, I don't know, shall we go into those cases as we Please, go along? Yes, or shall yes, we, mention, yeah, shall we do it as we go along? Yeah. Wonderful. So in this constitutional law sector, you'll see there are cases where, where in the Netherlands there are two key cases. One where an environmental group has pursued or instituted proceedings together with 900 Dutch citizens. We have to remember that many of these suits that are being brought under climate change are brought as class actions. And in this particular case, the citizens, the 900 citizens, have alleged that the Dutch government has failed to take sufficient steps to prevent global climate change. Um, the government had committed itself to reduce emissions by 17% and the applicants felt that this was simply in not sufficient and they wanted an undertaking that the government would reduce emissions to 25% below the 1990 levels. Um, they, the citizens alleged that the failure of the government to take more aggressive steps was a breach of their constitutional rights, including the right to a private life, a family life, a home life, and the right to life. Those all flow out of the European Convention on Human Rights. And the court agreed with the applicants yeah. and ordered the Dutch government to take steps to reduce emissions by 25% by 2030. So, and another case that we have is where an NGO instituted proceedings against Shell. Now, Shell, as a public listed company, has been cited in climate-related proceedings on a number of occasions. And I think this is also indicative that, you know, companies within South Africa should be aware that it is most likely that climate change litigation will first be instituted or most likely instituted against public listed companies before the litigation moves on to private listed companies. So in this particular matter, an NGO together with 17,000 citizens brought a suit against Shell asking that it reduce its carbon emissions by 45% by 2030 and to reach zero, net zero, by 2050. In this particular matter, again, the applicants relied on breaches of human rights and including a duty of care under the Dutch law. <coughs> Excuse me. And the court found in their favour not only did the court find that Shell within the Netherlands should reduce its footprint by 25% by 2030, but 
the court held that Shell should ensure that its entire value chain reduces its footprint by 25%. Now, the whole value chain would mean the Shell group, it's the people or the entities it sells product to and the end users of that product. So that is an extremely onerous uh, challenge that has been placed on Shell. Shell is currently appealing that judgment, but it demonstrates where the courts are prepared to take this on the basis of human rights. Yeah. Now, the next sector um, that is probably less common to be seen is in criminal law. <laughs> so at the moment, a, a complaint was laid with the International Criminal Court where the the complainant has asked the International Criminal Court to investigate President Bolsonaro, the Brazilian president, in relation to his policies that allow the ongoing deforestation of the Amazon rainforest, the Brazilian Amazon rain, rainforest. And the complaint goes along the lines that the environmental destruction of the Amazon is akin to a human rights violation or a crime against humanity in terms of the Rome Statute. So it'll be very interesting to see where this goes because it does give the indication that governments or presidents could be held responsible for what their countries are doing if it can be if it is found that what they are doing in the environment an environment within their jurisdiction amounts to a crime against humanity there is a very important case that has come out in the united states of america and it relates to financial disclosure and i think this is perhaps the type of case that we might see becoming more prevalent. Um, this particular matter is one in which a company named Exxon and its four directors were cited by shareholders, in fact. Okay. And the shareholders of Exxon were pursuing Exxon and its four directors in their personal capacities on the basis that Exxon had materially had had made materially false and misleading statements regarding the value and the amount of Exxon's oil and gas reserves and had also made false representations regarding its efforts to include a carbon proxy cost into the investments and the valuation process now just the background to this particular matter it transpired during the course of the case that the directors had been utilizing two different financial calculations in order to calculate their stock value and or the share price. And they've been using one set of calculations when calculating the internal financial model and the operational costs of the company, and then a different but more favorable financial model in order to calculate its share price. And the shareholders indicated or complained was that the directors had not taken a carbon proxy price or a proxy carbon cost into account when calculating the true cost 
of the life cycle of the assets. So mm -hmm. a proxy carbon cost isn't a real cost, but it is something that can be built into a company's financial model based on what it estimates it would have to pay in carbon costs going forward based on legislation that exists or that may See. come about based on the world's turn away from greenhouse gas emissions. Now, the allegation is that these directors were not including that cost into its financial model when um, disclosing or publishing its stock value, and therefore it gave the stock an artificially higher price. And in this particular instance, unfortunately, the stock did start falling in price and shareholders instituted these proceedings saying that the directors ought to have been more transparent, the directors ought to have included proxy carbon costs into their calculations that would have been more accurate in demonstrating the true life cycle costs of the reserves that they held in place and that the reserves were perhaps not going to generate as valuable an outcome as what was being portrayed. So there's a big burden coming you know, on directors mm -hmm. in order to take environmental factors and the costs of producing emissions into account when predicting future profits and the future value of reserves that they may have. Um, another area, so that's financial disclosure matters. If we then move on, um, very importantly, and I think this is the crux, the true crux of, of where climate change litigation may impact companies the greatest, and that's when it comes to directors' duties to exercise reasonable care and diligence. Now, climate change litigation has seen not only companies themselves being respondents, but in fact, boards of directors and those directors in their personal capacities are being pursued and applicants are endeavouring to hold directors accountable for their decisions in leading that company. Now, a case to watch, if there is any case to watch at the moment, it is a derivative action claim that has been brought in the UK this year, in February this year. This is where Earth Child, being an NGO, has filed a derivative action against Shell's board of directors based on the 2006 UK Companies Act. The allegation that's been made is that the directors have mismanaged material and foreseeable climate risks and have breached company law in doing so. Now, this particular claim is brought, as I said, by Earth Child and over 12 million shareholders or the holder of over 12 million shares that are valued at over a trillion US dollars. So this is a major sector of Shell's shareholding that has brought this, this, this claim. Now, the lawsuit alleges that Shell's 11 directors breached their legal duties under the Companies Act by failing firstly to adopt and implement an energy transition strategy that aligns with the Paris Agreement. You see, the Paris Agreement is really underpinning 
a lot, a great deal of the litigation that we're seeing arising, or at least the principles that are coming out of that litigation. Now, Shell's directors claim that they do have an energy transition strategy in place that includes a net zero emission plan in line with the 2050 target. Um, the applicants, however, complain that that strategy that Shell's board had adopted included and continued to include an overinvestment in new fossil fuel projects and that this investment was contrary to recommendations of the International Energy Agency. So this we must take note of because it impacts the boards of directors and the decisions they are making now on future investments. In this particular matter, the concern was that the fossil fuel investments or projects that the directors had approved investment in, the life cycle of those projects exceeded 2050 and intended to go beyond that into 2060. So the shareholders were querying, how is it possible that you are investing funds in projects based on fossil fuels that are going to extend beyond the 2050 deadline by which Shell ought to be net, at net zero. Now, what's important from a South African context in this particular matter, and you'll recognize these words. Let me read some words from the Companies Act in the UK. The directors have a legal duty to promote the success of a company, to act with reasonable care, skill and diligence when discharging those duties. Now, where do those words sound familiar from? Our own Companies Act requires a company or its directors, I should say, to act with reasonable care, skill and diligence in discharging their duties. So that's why I say this is a case to watch because South African directors have the same responsibilities and duties in this regard as Shell's board under UK law. And the shareholders are alleging that Shell's board has failed to exercise its duties with skill, care and diligence. So this matter is one to watch. As I said, it was instituted in February this year. So the matter is still underway, but we will keep um, everyone up to date on progress in this particular matter, particularly given its impact or its influence, I think, on future actions in South Africa. Brilliant. Beverly, thanks. I mean, it's been absolutely fabulous chatting to you. I think we have to um, uh, call an end now. I think we could go on all day as these things play out and, and really appreciate you drawing the parallel to what we can expect in South Africa and the, the fabulous backdrop and insights into the actual framework that we all need to abide by going forward. Uh, it's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thanks very much for the time. Thanks so much for having me and for inviting me to be part of this conversation.